Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Ideal. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, on this program, we discuss complex issues and events shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. This is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. If you'd like to learn more about our ideas and about our publication, you can visit us at newideal.einrand.org. Um, if you're watching on social media today, that's great. Uh, you can also interact with us sometimes more directly through Zoom by going to zoom.us slash join, meeting ID 812506718. Though I should mention that we are also paying special attention to any super chat questions that come in on YouTube today. So if you'd like to consider supporting this, these, uh, our program and this channel on YouTube, great way to do that is to donate uh, to get your question to the top of the list. And uh, if, if uh, we get those even during the course of the broadcast, we'll try to prioritize them. We won't just wait until the end. So our topic today, something that has been in the news quite a lot the last few weeks, the fuel on the fire of cancel culture. And uh, shortly, uh, I'm going to be joined, well, hopefully presently, I'll be joined by my colleague, Ilan Giorno. We're going to be discussing this topic together today. Hi, Ilan. Hey, Ben. Uh, so it's, it's actually kind of... Uh, uh, interesting that that this has become such a big item in the news because just a few weeks ago you did uh, a uh, talk about how what happens when journalists try to cancel Ayn Rand, and then uh, in subsequent weeks even more people tried to cancel the Ayn Rand Institute uh, because of uh, the the PPP loan that we took. We'll leave that aside for the moment, but uh, the reason this is in the news, uh, especially in the last few weeks is because of a very prominent open letter uh, written by or signed by a number of prominent intellectuals that appeared recently in Harper's Magazine uh, titled A Letter on Justice and Open Debate. This is uh, released on July 7th, uh, 2020. And I'll just say a few things about uh, what got people talking about this letter. So. Uh, it's, it's led to a lot of discussion of so-called cancel culture. The phrase isn't actually used in the letter, but uh, the letter touches on many issues that people associate with this notion of campus, of, of cancel culture. Uh, so for instance, uh, even though many of its signatories are prominent intellectuals on the left, like people like Noam Chomsky, for instance, uh, nonetheless, it bemoans the attack on the quote, free exchange of information by, quote, intolerant members of the left. Now, it does that in the context of saying lots of problems with the current Trump administration, uh, but it, it, it still uh, turns around and says we've got problems. They say we've got problems on the left as well. It, uh, it, it tries to uphold the value, this is, quote, the value of robust and even caustic counterspeech from all quarters against, quote, severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought, unquote. And it alludes to a number of examples where uh, this uh, so-called cancel culture has uh, seems to have been at work in recent controversies of the day. So it alludes, for instance, to the uh, 
uh, recent departure of the New York Times editor, James Bennett, because he uh, allowed a, uh, an op-ed to be published by Senator Tom Cotton uh, that made uh, claims about the presence of the military on the streets that people uh, found controversial. Uh, it, it also refers to oustings of various journalists, professors, uh, and researchers for their controversial stances. And it claims that, quote, and I'm here, I'm quoting directly, the restriction of debate, whether by a repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. And I should just also mention that in the wake of the release of this letter, there's been even more controversy uh, with certain of its signatories. So uh, for instance, Barry Weiss, who is a New York Times columnist, resigned uh, with, a, with a noteworthy controversial open letter of her own, basically alluding to some of the same kinds of issues at the New York Times and her experience there. Andrew Sullivan, who is, was not one of the signatories, uh, nonetheless uh, also uh, made the news by resigning from his position at uh, New York Magazine, uh, again, for similar reasons having to do with the intellectual climate uh, at the magazine. There's a lot to talk about here, uh, Elon, and, and I'll just uh, start by saying that, I mean, there's, I think, a number of interesting questions you can raise about the the factual claims in the letter, and, and there have been numerous commentators who've said, well, maybe uh, it's not clear how, how many people are actually being canceled or whether the alleged cancellations are as bad as it's suggested. I mean, J.K. Rowling signed this letter. Uh, she still has all her book deals. There are people who criticize her, but what's the impact, they'll, they'll ask. Uh, and there have also been very interesting questions, and I think we'll talk more about this about whether this is really just a phenomenon on the left or whether it is something that cuts across our entire intellectual culture. Yeah, I just wanted to add something to this. So you mentioned the ways in which this idea of cancel culture has become a, a big issue and people are talking about it. If you think back, if you heard Donald Trump's speech at Mount Rushmore, he brings that up. It's a big part of his uh, positioning. So it's clearly something that has risen much more to the prominence. Of, and we, we should probably say something later on about the phenomenon that we saw a few years back on college campuses with deplatforming and so on. I think there's connections there. Um, but one thing about, so I think a good place to start is to talk about, you know, and, and you mentioned my article about journalists trying to cancel Ayn Rand. I, I put it in, in scare quotes because I think there's, there's a real question of what is it we mean by cancel culture or canceling somebody? And you gave the example of J.K. Rowling. She, she herself describes her in one of the letters, she, one of the articles she's written about this phenomenon. She describes herself as having been multiply canceled numerous times. And so the question is, what exactly is it to be canceled? And what is this phenomenon? Is there, is, is there a thing here? What, what are we trying to understand? So maybe let's dig into that. That's the first thing uh, to talk about, uh, whether there is a thing here. I think there is a thing here, but it's not well conceptualized. It's not well defined by any, really any of the parties uh, who've been discussing this. So uh, some of the parties who've discussed this have pointed this out, that it's a poorly defined concept, cancel culture. So are we talking about uh, any online campaign of shaming? Uh, 
if that's the case, I got canceled yesterday when I, when I did a webinar about abortion with Gloria Alvarez. You should see my Twitter feed. Um, but uh, or is it or is it is it an online campaign of shaming that's directed uh, specifically uh, for the purpose of getting somebody fired or getting them deplatformed in a certain way? That hasn't happened to me yet. Fingers crossed. Uh, or is it only if the the target of the campaign is someone famous and prominent who is in the spotlight and people are trying to take them out of the spotlight. I mean, that's part of the language of cancellation. I think it originally came up because like somebody has a TV show that gets canceled and or they have a, a prominent career that somebody desires to, in effect, get canceled. But then that makes you wonder, well, is if it's any target, if it's any campaign of shaming a prominent person, is, is it always a bad thing to do that? I mean, what about the campaign to quote unquote cancel Harvey Weinstein for likely engaging in various forms of sexual assault? Is, is, is that such a bad thing? And we'll talk more about the evaluation that this concept uh, tries to engage in shortly. Um, and is, it, is, it, is the kind of shaming uh, or, or are they saying that the shaming has to be about what people say as opposed to what they do? A lot of the examples that are alluded to in the Harper's letter uh, relate to discourse. They relate to people being shamed for their controversial opinions. Now, maybe that's where this concept is. Uh, that's what it's trying to focus on. Though, again, it's none of this is very clearly defined. And so I, whenever I'm going to use this word or phrase today, it's always going to be in quotation marks. I don't mean to endorse it because I think it's, it's, it's messy, to say the least. So, I mean, maybe it's worth saying, so, you know, when I think about these sort of issues, um, maybe it's worth parsing out, are you, you know, is it right, is it, is it ever appropriate or just to point out someone's flaws and errors and, and bad ideas and evil ideas and, and, and expose them to public shame and ridicule? And my answer to that is yes, I think it's, it's not only appropriate if it's, if it's deserved, but it's necessary. I think it's an important part of what a healthy society involves. And it's interesting, I think, you know, we don't, I don't really want to get into the Harvey Weinstein example, but since you mentioned it, part of what came out in, in the, the investigations is that so many people knew there were jokes about it and it was just this sort of accepted phenomenon. You know, how much better would it have been if people had said publicly, look, you cannot behave like this, you know, leaving aside which legal lines he's crossed, uh, and I think he did cross many lines, uh, there, there should have just been more openness like, this is wrong. You can't do this. And people with courage to say that, and it didn't happen. And there's a kind of interesting question, which I don't know how you would establish the answer to, but a kind of um, protectiveness around him because of who he was and the kind of influence he had. And it's a kind of conformity. You don't want to be the one to stick your neck out against him. And I think that, so there's a real place and a need for public uh, um, criticism and humiliation, not humiliation necessarily in every case, but if that's what people experience, but it just exposing people's wrongdoings, I think is, is definitely a, a, has a place, but is that what's happening now? I mean, that's a real question. Yeah. So that gets us to not only the question of how to define the general phenomenon, but in particular, how to uh, evaluate it. Uh, and here, 
I think it's very important that the, the, the examples that are often given of the cancel culture that's supposed to be bad are, they're still very different from each other. So on the one hand, we have things that are real and genuine abridgments of actual free speech. Uh, so anything from a government actually passing some kind of censorship to private individuals that use physical threats, coercion, and intimidation to actually shut down speakers. All of these are real abridgments of free speech rights. So if a mob you know, comes into a lecture hall and you know, kicks somebody off a stage when that person had an actual agreement with the university or the institution to give a speech, that's a real, that is a real form of the violation of free speech. And it's a real problem uh, and absolutely deserves condemnation, regardless of the content of the person's speech. And you know, so I understand, for instance, why somebody like Salman Rushdie put his, his name on this letter. He's somebody who was, was targeted by a government and by terrorists because of uh, his novels. But then that is packaged together with a whole bunch of other things that are very different. Uh, the actions of Twitter mobs are not literally mobbing. You know, there are people who comment on your thread and they say things that you don't like. Uh, but they're not breaking any rules. They're not violating anybody's rights in doing it. Uh, they're trying to shame you, perhaps. They're trying to encourage other people to dissociate with you. They're trying to persuade, let's say, your employer to fire you, or they're trying to persuade the TV network to cancel your show. But it's this is a form of persuasion. Uh, this is not a form of coercion. So this isn't a violation of anybody's free speech. And there are things in that Harper's letter which make it sound like the authors think they're the same thing. That anytime you criticize someone's speech or anytime you try to get them deplatformed by persuading somebody not to pay them money, that that's some kind of uh, free speech violation. That's a big mistake. It's something that we've, it's a mistake that we've talked about a lot at the Ayn Rand Institute, especially when we've been talking about uh, allegations of censorship on social media. Uh, we've done previous webinars about this. Yaron uh, Brook uh, recently did one of his uh, uh, one of his shows about cancel culture, doing a very good job, I thought, breaking apart these two issues, talking about they are not the same. And then, in addition to that, when you focus on the campaigns to shame or dissociate. Uh, or to deplatform someone. That's a mixed bag as well. Uh, there's uh, some campaigns to do uh, to deplatform people, which uh, are uh, pretty shameful and pretty irrational and pretty unjust. And then there's others that I think are totally appropriate. That, like you've been, like you alluded to a moment ago, Elon, uh, talking about you know, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it have been better if if, if Harvey Weinstein had been publicly shamed? earlier. And you can give a number of other examples of this kind of thing. And, and you can give examples from across the political spectrum where uh, regardless of your political affiliation, you're going to realize there was some kind of shaming uh, or some kind of association necessary. So for instance, uh, what if a university decides that they don't want to let David Duke speak? Uh, David Duke, who's, uh, I think, your center of the page 
uncontroversial example of of a white supremacist slash racist. Uh, but on the other side of things, uh, or the way people think of it as the other side of things, maybe you'll remember back uh, after 9-11, there was a professor in Colorado who said some terribly uh, anti-American things about how the, the, the people who worked in the World Trade Center towers uh, basically deserved what they got. They were little Eichmanns who were doing the, the, the deeds of uh, oppressive capitalism. And so there was a campaign to get Ward Churchill fired. Uh, now, leave aside for the moment the fact that he was working for a public university. If this were just some guy working at a university and you, you, you convinced his employers, this is a bad person. We don't want him teaching our students. Uh, there were a lot of conservatives who got on board with the idea of firing Ward Churchill. That sounds like public shaming campaign aimed at deplatforming somebody from, in this case, his teaching position. Is that a bad thing? I mean, I think probably it would have been a good thing, all, you know, all things being equal. We talked about social media platforms already. I mean, I don't think it's a great idea that someone like Alex Jones has a platform. He spreads a lot of misinformation. But if, uh, if you find that example uh, too controversial, let's uh, go back in time a little bit to the 1950s. 1940s, when there was a campaign by people who think of themselves as conservatives to deprive communists in Hollywood uh, of a living. And now this, this, uh, this opens up a, an interesting can of worms because a lot of people think that uh, there was something unjust and oppressive and uh, involving censorship about that. But it's something the Institute has spent some time in the past commenting on is that uh, if all you're doing is saying, uh, you know, I'm a Hollywood movie studio and I don't believe in communism. And people have just told me that this screenwriter that I've employed is injecting communist propaganda into the movie scripts, then I don't want to hire him. And if people organize to, you know, uh, make sure that somebody can't get a job in Hollywood from that, you might disagree with uh, their, their position if you're a communist. But the, if the Hollywood studio isn't a communist, don't they have the right? And isn't it good for them, in fact? to uh, make sure someone like that doesn't work for them. If, if, if in fact, Hollywood, uh, if, if Hollywood at this time is anti-communist and if communism is evil. Um, so there's a lot there, uh, which you can, you can come up with a lot of examples of public shaming, shaming campaigns aimed even at deplatforming someone or at, uh, at removing them from their position, which seem like perfectly just things. And just because, because it is about what these people are saying, because it's not the case that ideas are just hot air. It's not the case that they're inert in the world. When people uh, speak, other people listen and other people act on those ideas. And if the ideas are evil, the people who listen will do evil things with them. Now that's even though they don't have to, like nobody has to listen to the evil ideas of communism. Nobody has to act on the ideas that they hear, but uh, being able to act on them certainly requires having heard of them somewhere. And if you're the person with the platform and you wanna remove that necessary condition, uh, it's your right to do it if you don't want to put these, these evil ideas out there in the world. 
I just want to jump in with a couple of questions. One from our super chat. Thank you for, for that. And um, both from the super chat, but I, I just let me add to them. So one question is about the, this idea of a Twitter mob, which we both use that expression. Is it, is it itself putting together things that don't, shouldn't really be put together? And I, I yeah, I, I think it's, it's a question what one means by that. There's definitely different kinds of behavior that occur on Twitter and you know, we, we would have to form a taxonomy of what we think is going on. And I think it's interesting as well to parse out that there are things people do on Twitter that do break the law. If someone threatens your life, I mean, that's clearly a, 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 a step towards uh, using force and that's wrong. And, and that's not the same thing as just saying, I don't like you go away and you should be canceled or whatever it is that people are saying. Um, and I think it, it, it's dangerous to treat Twitter as the thing. It's people using this tool. And I certainly don't have the view that Twitter is a bad thing. I think it's just a question of how do people use it and, and misuse it? And, and what are the norms that should govern these sorts of places where um, I don't think uh, people have figured that out yet. And you, obviously you can control whose stuff you see and whose you don't. Then the other quick question, I wanted to get your perspective here, because I think it ties in, Ben, with what you were saying about, you know, that you gave the examples of the movie studio and, and the, the university bringing in a speaker in. So, uh, the question uh, that was put in the super chat is, um, so there are people who are evil and there are people who are mistaken and then there are people that you might disagree with um, and they get treated if they're, as if they're evil. So how do we, how, who gets to decide? How do you sort that out? And what's your take on that? Well, we each get to decide, I think, is the answer. And I mean, you gave a, I was actually going to mention later that you gave a webinar uh, some months ago on should you judge other people? Uh, talking about, uh, in part, talking about an article that Ayn Rand wrote on this very subject, who's the final authority in ethics? And, you know, her answer to this question is, uh, there, in a way, it's a mistake to, to talk about there being a final authority, but uh, if, you, if you have to, the, the authority is reality, but you are still the one who has to look at reality. You have to look at the facts for yourself and decide uh, on the basis of those facts if somebody's evil and if they deserve um, if they deserve uh, judgment. And one of the things that we're about to talk about is that uh, this, the responsibility of judgment is, is a weighty one and not one that everybody exercises properly. So yes, you, each of us has to look at the facts in order to judge if we want to be rational and responsible in the way we do it. Not everybody does. And that's part of the problem. And, and that's a good segue, actually, to, to the next issue, because even though I just mentioned a number of cases where I think uh, there would be justifiable grounds for launching a kind of public campaign to shame somebody and maybe uh, get them removed from their position, there's a lot of cases where this sort of campaign is not handled well, where it is not handled rationally. And, and to the extent that the people who talk about cancel culture are talking about these kinds of examples when I'm ones I'm about to mention I think they are on to something I think there is a real problem in our intellectual culture and so you can see this especially in a number of recent cases where the figures who are uh, being quote-unquote canceled uh, are being accused of being threatening because some because of some position that they've held where no attention is given to the arguments that they give for their position and no attention is given to the 
the facts that show they're not actually threatening anybody. So what I have in mind here in particular is the JK Rowling example. So just to give some context for this, uh, Rowling uh, some months ago uh, made a number of uh, tweets that were critical of the, uh, the current thinking among the uh, intellectual consensus about transgendered people. And then she followed up with a, a lengthy letter that she wrote defending her position. Um, basically, her position is that sex is biological and that you can hold that view and not be hateful or bigoted toward trans people. And she explained how her reason for wanting to defend this position is because she, she thinks that that if you don't think of sex as biological, it is uh, uh, dangerous for the interests of women and of same sex and people who have same sex attractions, which presupposes conversation, uh, uh, an understanding of sex. Now, leave aside for the moment the whole question of whether she's right about that. This is not a can of worms I want to open right now. Um, that's not the point. So the point is not about whether she's right about her position on transgender issues. What's interesting is that in spite of the lengthy letter she wrote and in spite of the arguments that she gave for her position, uh, the, the cancel culture opened up in a big way for her and uh, she, was, she was shamed relentlessly and castigated by including people by her, including by her fans people who said that the things that she wrote in this letter were profoundly hurtful and exclusionary and transphobic and they said she was a bigot who wanted to attack trans people but it's very difficult to get any of that from the actual letter that she wrote and i think this is just the latest in uh, the latest example in a, in, a, in a similar culture of public shaming and accusations that's, you know, previously was called call-out culture. You saw this a lot, uh, written about a lot on, on college campuses. Uh, for instance, if you, if you read that book by uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, they talk about call out culture and they give examples, uh, for instance, of uh, Professor John McWhorter, who's, who's a, a Democrat, uh, who's, uh, who is a linguist by his training, but on occasion he writes about race issues and it happens to be black himself, but uh, he was called a white supremacist because he simply raised critical questions about whether or not it was true that everybody who voted for Trump is a racist. And he you know, gave arguments for his conclusion, he, based on his experience of meeting people who voted for Trump, but people called McWhorter a white supremacist. So my observation about these two examples, and there's many other examples we could talk about, is that whatever you think about the merits of the position that uh, McWhorter or Rawling uh, is arguing for, 
the idea that they are bigoted or hateful or threatening to the trans people or the racial minorities who are claiming victimhood is, is an idea that is simply without any merit. Uh, there are no arguments that the critics of these people give for why simply making the statements that uh, Rowling or McWhorter made was somehow threatening to anyone. That's just kind of taken for granted. Uh, at most, what these positions do is threaten uh, the, they threaten to refute the contrary positions that are held by certain people. So there's obviously a, uh, there's disagreement there. And if you're afraid of someone who disagrees with you, then that threatens your positions, but it doesn't threaten your safety or uh, anything like that. And no attempt is made to engage with the other facts uh, with the facts that are presented in their arguments, you know, so uh, nobody attempts to deal with J.K. Rowling's argument that if you don't think of sex as biological, then uh, this is this, this poses problems for how to think about the interests of women and how to think about the interests of people with same-sex attraction. Again, not endorsing anything she says necessarily, but the point is nobody is even engaging with her arguments. And they're not engaging with the fact that it's, it's really hard to see how people like Rowling or McWhorter are in any other way uh, threatening to the safety of the, of the minorities that they're alleged of being threatening to, especially when these are both people, broadly speaking, themselves, uh, who've in other cases taken lots of positions against racism, against bigotry. Uh, so, I mean, there's other examples we could go, we could go to, but I, I think we should probably get to the, to the main point that I wanted to get to, Elon, which is, so I called this webinar the fire, the, the, the fuel on the fire of cancel culture. And so when you strip away all the complexities of this, because it's a real mixed bag for the reasons that we've talked about, when you get down to this last issue, these examples of uh, public shaming, that is based on no evidence, but it's motivated by the idea that the things people say are threatening. What I think you have is a really good example of a particular style of injustice and a particular style of thinking that Ayn Rand called the argument from intimidation. And I'm just gonna go ahead and uh, we share a quotation here. Uh, this is a quotation from an article that Ayn Rand wrote called The Argument from Intimidation. And I hope you see that it's, this is exactly what we're dealing with now today in this particular aspect of so-called cancel culture. She, she says, there's a certain type of argument which in fact is not an argument, but a means of forestalling debate and extorting an opponent's agreement with one's undiscussed notions. It's a method of bypassing logic by means of psychological pressure. It consists of threatening to impeach an opponent's character by means of his argument, thus impeaching the argument without debate. Example, only the immoral can fail to see that candidate X's is false. The falsehood of his argument is asserted arbitrarily and offered as proof of his immorality. The essential characteristic of the argument from intimidation, she writes, 
is its appeal to moral self-doubt and its reliance on the fear, guilt, or ignorance of the victim. It is used in the form of an ultimatum demanding that the victim renounce a given idea without discussion under threat of being considered morally unworthy. The pattern is always only those who are evil or dishonest or heartless or insensitive, ignorant, etc., can hold such an idea. And the obviously you would need to add a new example to her list because now today it's only those who are racist or only those who are transphobic or only those who are bigoted can hold a position like this. And uh, it, it's interesting, this is not simply a kind of run of the mill injustice where the allegation is made without evidence or with only scant sloppy attention to the evidence. This is a particularly concentrated form of injustice because it purposefully avoids the evidence that you would need uh, to assess uh, somebody's, somebody's moral character. It encourages people to avoid that evidence, forestalls discussion of that evidence, forestalls the discussion of the very issue that is in question. Like, is Rowling actually right about her view on the biology of sex? And instead takes that for granted and tries to guilt people her and her fans into silencing themselves uh, uh, from defending against the charges and examining the actual question that's at stake. So, I, I mean, I, I'm glad you brought up this argument from intimidation. I, and I recommend everyone go read this because I think it's, it's hugely clarifying for interactions with people in general in terms of the way people argue. And she, she, when she wrote this, I think it was 1966? 64. 64. Um, yeah, she was. She argued that this style of of engagement, this arguing from intimidation, was prevalent already, and I think it, it still is. And it's just, it's helpful to think about what are some of the signs of it. One of the things she says is a telltale. Uh, one way to to detect it is that if you encounter a smear, it's a kind of argument from intimidation because it you're kind of nullifying somebody without really engage, without any attempt to engage in what they stand for, what reasons they might have. And it's just, they must be bad. This is, this is what we know about. And I think some of what people are reacting to in this, this sort of cluster of things that are called council culture, I think some of the sort of reasonable negative reactions to it are the smears of people. So there, is there such a thing as racism? Of course, and it's a huge evil but it's, it's really bad to use it as a way of shutting down people who, who you disagree with. Or is there such a thing as um, hostility or irrational hatred for people who are trans? I think there is, it's a, it's a real phenomenon. And, but it's not a good idea to use that, this idea of transphobic, to shut people down whose ideas you disagree with. And, and in effect say, you are violating the consensus. You're violating the accepted bounds of what we believe to be true you're you're um you're, you're messing things up for us we can't have you be here so you have to go away we don't and not you're wrong because here are the reasons and here are the six logical fallacies or whatever it is that you think is going on but just you have to be ejected there's no room for you here and we're not even going to spend any a moment longer than than just to smear you to, to kind of kick you out and, and the, the part of the danger is that it it, it it's um the more this happens, the more it becomes normalized. And that's sort of really destructive to sort of intellectual life. 
Um, ben, the, we've got a couple of questions. Do you want to take, take them now sure. or? Okay, so one question is about, um, so let me just read it for you. Uh, there's an argument that no ideas should be disallowed, that bad ideas should be countered with good ideas argued well. Uh, question mark is a valid question mark. Um, so I guess that goes back to a little bit earlier in the, in the conversation about um, who gets to decide or what does it mean for things? Is there, do you, what do you do with bad ideas? Yeah, I think uh, it depends on what you mean by uh, there are no ideas that uh, shouldn't be heard or argued with. There's lots of situations where I can think of examples of ideas that you shouldn't engage with in a kind of public conversation. So for instance, uh, and this came up in, in your own podcast recently, uh, he talked about how he does not do debates with communists. He does debates with uh, democratic socialists, so-called, but people who, you know, were apologists for or supporters of the totalitarian communist regimes of the 20th century are in effect people who have blood on their hands and you, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't sanction them. You shouldn't consider it within your dignity to have a conversation with with people like this. There are some kinds of questions that you, you should not regard as debatable. Now, you know, in your own mind, you should understand what's wrong with communism and you might want to, you know, read some marks to understand why it's, you know, what you really think of it. But it's, it's one thing to think about the ideas for yourself. It's another thing to engage in a public conversation with advocates of certain ideas because ideas are not, again, they're not neutral, inert things. They have consequences in the world and there are such things as evil ideas. Just to add one quick thing about that, I, I, one of my concerns about this issue of cancel culture and the, the way it packages things that are dissimilar, essentially not really belonging together, is that there, there, this issue that you're raising about who are you going to engage with and on what terms and why and what does it mean to sanction and what does it look like, what are the consequences of sanctioning ideas that are evil and, and what does it look like to sanction good ideas, that's a real issue. And it needs, it needs to be more prominent. People need to think about it more. And I think the concern, one of the negative consequences of this phenomenon we're living through is that's going to get tarnished <laughs> in a way because of all the bad examples of people who are unjustly pushed to the margins or, or, or um, silenced or intimidated uh, just through social uh, pressure. When there is, a, like, if, so if you're a podcast, uh, if you have a podcast, and you decide which guests you want to have. It should be a real question. You can't just have anybody because if you have them on, like, you know, one of the signatories is Noam Chomsky. I would not have him on this podcast. I would not even have, I would not have him on a stage. And, and that's because of his views. And I think he has really evil views in politics. And he's stood, he's, he's defended uh, evil organizations and, and movements like the Khmer Rouge. And he's an apologist for, for genocide. So, for, so there's no place for him on any kind of, in my view, on any podcast I would be in and on any event I would do it. And I wouldn't, and I, I think this was, I wouldn't want to be in the company of, uh, of Noam Chomsky on, on an intellectual statement either, which I think is a real problem. But, that, but you should also think about, well, who would you want to be on your side? And who do you think needs support and defense and, 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 and uh, positive endorsement? And I think that all of that, is a live issue. It's always an issue in an intellectual world and just in the world in general and in everyone's life. And it's just getting clouded because the more people kind of react negatively to the bad examples of what we're describing, the more that's going to become tarnished. 
Yeah, and on that, it's it's interesting to note that uh, some of the critics of so-called cancel culture have started calling it a new form of McCarthyism. And that's interesting because Ayn Rand herself commented on the use of the, the word McCarthyism. She regarded it as what she called an anti-concept, which uh, is a rationally uh, indefensible, unnecessary term, which has the effect of eliminating from discussion uh, crucial, important, and rational concept. And the problem that she had with McCarthyism was just like with what we're talking about now, uh, it has the effect of grouping together two very different things. One is the sort of uh, uh, dishonest, uh, baseless, accusations sometimes involving even intrusion of government that Senator Joseph McCarthy was was known for on the one hand, but on the other hand, being anti-communist. And these are very different things. You can be anti-communist and not engage in the uh, character assassinations that people that like McCarthy did. And her concern was that when you start uh, calling anybody who's anti-communist a McCarthyist. You have the effect, this has the effect of associating anyone who's anti-communist with these unjust accusations. And so that means conversation of the ideas of, of communism, ex being able to explain why communism's evil is suddenly taken off the stage. Uh, I think it'd be useful to just dig in a little bit more about this argument from intimidation. Just say, if, I think it was worth unpacking what it is she thinks makes it work on people and it, it's not i don't think of it as a logical fallacy in the sense that you know it, like a circular argument or where it's there's some element of a skill in logic that people lack I, I mean i think it's partly that but it's it's not primarily that it's more i mean her one of her insights is it's a psychological phenomenon that is really salient in why why it works maybe we should say a bit about that because i think that's part of what's going on in what we're seeing in some of these cases that are grouped under the heading of cancel culture. There's psychology on both ends. There's the psychology of the people who are using the argument, and there's the psychology of the people who are the targets of it. And the first thing to say, I think, is about the people who are the targets, because as the way she puts it is that it appeals to feel, fear, guilt, or ignorance of the victim to get them to renounce an idea without discussion. And there the idea is, well, you don't want to be a racist. So if you're somebody like J.K. Rowling, you don't want to be accused of bigotry. If you're a good person, uh, you don't want to be associated with bad ideas. You don't want to be accused of immoral practices. And so it, it, it's a way of, I mean, it's an example of what Ayn Rand called uh, white blackmail in, uh, in Atlas Shrugged, where the, the, it, it targets specifically the better people because they have a concern with their moral character. And as a result, they, they might go to uh, extra lengths to make sure that their character is not assassinated. But if they're too fearful uh, and not morally certain enough about their own character, they might fall for it rather than, say, defending themselves and saying, no, I'm actually doing the right thing. You're making an unjust accusation. So one of the things that Ayn Rand thought was that it, you need to have moral certainty if you're uh, going to defend yourself against this kind of argument. And a lot of people don't because a lot of people don't have the understanding of the morality of their position uh, or the rationality of their position and often because they lack a, a rational philosophic framework. Then there's the matter of the psychology of the people who use the argument. And that's what's, I think, especially interesting because it, 
part of what she emphasizes is that it comes from a fear of disagreement. It comes from the, the people who use the argument are people who, what she calls, uh, engage in social metaphysics. They think that other people are, uh, the consciousness of other people is more important than their own and more important than reality. It's the other people's views determine reality. And so if another person disagrees with you, you, you find this as a real challenge to your self-esteem. But because you don't really have a concept of a, of, a, of a fully independent reality and a set of facts against which that, person's, that other person's views uh, can be compared, you think, well, the only way to eliminate this threat to me is not to refute them with logic. It's not to point to the facts that show why they're wrong. It's rather to intimidate them. It's rather to make them afraid of me. Uh, just like I was afraid of them, I'm going to make them afraid of me. Uh, and then you hope that by intimidating them into a kind of blind agreement, that then is supposed to help you pretend that, that you know what you're talking about, that you're right, when in fact, uh, I mean, when it doesn't. It's, it, so it's a... It's a it's a really uh, in, insidious example of a uh, way of seeking pseudo self-esteem by cowling someone else into agreeing with you and then they help you fake your own uh, illusion of, of efficacy. So that's, I would say, that's psychology of where it comes from on both ends of the argument. Yeah, and I think one of the things you can observe in, in a number of these cases is that in the background there is, we all know what's right and you're not conforming to it. Like if this were translated into simple English, because you're not conforming to what is, we all know is right, you have to be kicked out. And you're, you're gonna be kicked out in, in, not in a reasonable way because you, you've come up with a, a wrong view for reasons that they don't agree with. It's you're not conforming. You're not following what is known to be. So it, when people are, I think part of the complaint that this is about, um, creating kind of groupthink, or there's also the buzzwords people are using to try to capture what is going on in the phenomenon. Um, or, I think conform conformity is a better way to capture it. Um, and I think it comes from, th this ties in with your point about this sort of psychology of the people engaged in this, which is they presumably get some sort of uh, boost from being conformist in, in this sense. And they are enforcing it on others and, and sort of they become, so it feeds conformity and then it's enforced conformities. And I think that's part of the, the what makes this anti-intellectual in a very deep way. Uh, so it's clearly not about the what arguments people are making, though in some cases it's different. And it's making people either blindly obedient to whatever the consensus or, or right thinking way of approaching this is, or they're out. And it's, it's, I mean, it's not an accident that people are complaining this is religious. I mean, this is exactly what it means. You're a heretic. Not, oh yeah, we have a disagreement about how to solve this and let's look at the fact. There are no facts when you're, when you're following authority. And here the authority is the group, sort of collective conformity. And one of the uh, examples that Rand actually uses in her article, Argument from Intimidation, is that this is just like the old mystic slogan to those who understand no explanation is necessary uh, and to those who don't none is possible and that's that's one of the things that i find the most 
worrying about this trend, uh, that it resembles this kind of medieval mysticism, but that you also now see it not just on the left, but throughout our intellectual culture. So it's not just in campaigns against noteworthy celebrities. You also see it on college campuses whenever some controversial speaker or professor is trying to give a talk and the critics of the professor think they need a safe space. Uh, sometimes the targets are non-prominent people who have a lot less uh, to fight back with. There was an example I read about a principal who was fired because she wrote a post uh, saying that even though she agreed with certain objectives of the Black Lives Matter movement, she objected to their uh, tactics and she was fired for that and accused of being a racist. But it's not just something that you see coming from the left. You see it on the, on the so-called right as well. I mean, where anybody who raises any criticisms of the policies of the current administration is accused of suffering from something called Trump derangement syndrome and no further discussion uh, is necessary because now they've been diagnosed with a with some kind of mental disorder. This is a severely anti-intellectual trend and one that has a special ability to intensify the tribalism in our culture that's already becoming endemic because it encourages people to think of those they disagree with as just in a prepackaged way falling into a group of evil people who's out to get them. And it permits no third alternative, no way of thinking, well, maybe they disagree with me, but they're not threatening me. Maybe they're, they disagree with me, but they're not immoral. And uh, I made the point at the beginning that you, you have to unpackage the, uh, the shaming campaigns from attacks on free speech. They are very different, but the psychology that we've just been talking about, the, psych the kind of uh, conformist psychology that, that fuels the argument from intimidation is, I think, nonetheless, the psychology that eventually does lead to censorship. So if you want to talk about a culture of free speech as opposed to a culture of censorship, if you're the kind of person who's so afraid of disagreement that you just want to intimidate other people into blind agreement. I mean, once people like that get political power, they do actually engage in censorship. And I think you see some of that uh, uh, in, in politicians uh, on both sides of the aisle today. So this is why I think even though the, this cancel culture phrase is, is, is poorly defined and packages together a lot of different things, the people who are worried about it, they do, I think, have their finger on something. There's a real problem out there in our intellectual culture, and we need to think uh, much more carefully about how we engage in arguments with certain people uh, if we want to try to fight against this. So should I uh, start to wrap up with some takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I just want to add one thing to your comment. And sure. I think it bears real emphasis that um, the tools of ostracizing people, of publicly denouncing them, of um, sort of exposing them to shame in, in all sorts of ways for actual wrongdoing or for irrationality or for, for evil ideas, those are important tools. So one of the things that's essential in the fight, you mentioned being, so you mentioned racism earlier, one of the most important things that's necessary to combat racism 
is to ostracize people and to marginalize them because of their racist ideas. And that's, that's been true. Uh, it has, I don't think it's been used enough. And I think being confident in pointing that out and having arguments to show an evidence that someone is racist and, and then pushing them out and marginalizing them, I think that's an essential thing. So cancel culture is, is bringing together all kinds of things that have good uses in the right context and that they shouldn't be abandoned. So uh, for people reacting to this negatively, to Ben's point about unpacking this is really important because you, you, it's important to decide whom you should sanction and whom you should not and whom you don't want to be associated with and you walk away from them or disassociated with them publicly. So all of those are essential for having put a moral clarity in your life. And they're all the more important in intellectual debates and issues. So just think more about the, the elements in this phenomenon and what it is that people are doing and evaluate them specifically. Don't just say, oh, cancel culture is bad. Well, what is exactly this phenomenon? I think it, we started with that and it's really important to, to, to underscore this idea that it's not a unified thing and it's, it, it, it takes work to figure out what elements of it you're evaluating and how to evaluate them. Yeah, so the way I would summarize what I've been arguing for at least, and the first is what you were just saying. One, cancel culture is, is not a clearly defined uniform, uniform category. It's a mix of things uh, that are not all bad, but, and this is a really big but, a significant number of the recent things filed under cancel culture, alleged cancellations, they are empowered by a really dangerous style of thinking. Uh, this argument from intimidation that uh, comes from a kind of conformist tribalist psychology. If people want to learn more about this, first place to go is Ayn Rand's essay, The Argument from Intimidation, which is reprinted in her book, The Virtue of Selfishness. But you can also go to the Ayn Rand lexicon, which is online uh, at ARI's site. And there's a lengthy entry with lengthy passages taken from that article. Uh, so just go to the lexicon, look up Argument from Intimidation. I would also mention there's a few uh, YouTube uh, webinars that we've done recently that bear on some of the issues that we talked about today. You find these on uh, ARI's YouTube channel. I did a webinar called What's Wrong with Virtue Signaling, which is almost the flip side of uh, what we've been talking about today. People who uh, are said to virtue signal rather than... Uh, it's a way of criticizing people for praising themselves rather than for criticizing others, which involves a similar package deal. I talk about that there. And I, we already referenced a talk you gave, a webinar you gave, Ilan, uh, some weeks ago about uh, why it is important to judge other people, uh, especially drawing on Ayn Rand's essay, who's the final authority in ethics. We have a few minutes left. Should we, should we take a few more questions? Yeah, so one question I think is really gets at something fundamental is um, in Zoom, we're getting this question, is altruism at the core of a lack of moral certainty? Yes. Uh, I, it's definitely uh, a big part of it and as, on several levels, I think. So one issue is that the kinds of things that people are often attacked for are, uh, things like being selfish. And if, if you are not confident in your right to pursue happiness, you're, if you're influenced by altruistic thinking, then yeah, you're going to 
have a lot of self-doubt about this. So, I mean, I think you see this right now with the, uh, the question about free market organizations taking bailout money. I mean, we at ARI took it. We did it with the confidence that we have the right to, to take it as restitution for the variety of ways in which we, as well as many others, have been victimized by various status policies. But if you're not really convinced about, about egoism, if you're not really convinced about the morality of self-interest, yeah, you're going to think, well, maybe I shouldn't take that money and maybe I should let them cancel me and take the, take the stage, the spotlight away from me. But, you know, so we're, we have a fair amount of moral confidence on this, and that's why we're not giving in on this one. But also, uh, there's the issue that one of the things that altruism does is that it, even you know, leaving aside questions about the, uh, the morality of the pursuit of material self-interest, altruism at its deepest root wants to argue it's selfish for you to use your own mind to figure out the truth. And so you shouldn't do it. Who are you to judge is ultimately an idea that comes from altruism. Um, because why should you have confidence in your own little mind when there are these other people who disagree with you? You should bow down to them. You should defer to them. So that, to the extent that altruism makes you think, who am I to think this when other people disagree with me? Absolutely, it's at the core of this kind of lack of moral certainty. So another question uh, from a viewer regarding something that we touched on, but I think it's worth just circling back briefly. Could you address the angle of the New York Times had, uh, the New York Times had to deal with uh, where employees claiming the editorial that was published by Tom Cotton made them feel less safe, uh, which I, and then the question says, which I took the claim, which I took as the claim the company was creating an unsafe environment. So I haven't looked very carefully at this particular controversy. Uh, I suspect that the, the op-ed itself probably had some content problems. And, you know, to the extent that what the, argue, what the article was arguing for was putting more federal troops on the street, uh, if you think that's not the role of the federal government in dealing with the recent civil unrest, if you think, well, no, that's a job for the state or the city, you might find it threatening to go out in the streets. But for creating an unsafe work environment, that I don't get. Uh, you might think that the, the improper editorial procedures were used, that the, the article made factual claims that were baseless, that should have been checked, that there should have been more editorial oversight. That is some of what is being alleged about this particular case. I haven't looked closely at whether that's true, but it's still a whole other thing from, I'm unsafe in my work environment because my editor wants to publish things I disagree with. And that, if that's the thinking behind it, then I think that's more of this kind of argument from intimidation that we've been talking about. Yeah, I agree. I think there, there I certainly think there are problems with the op-ed uh, and the, the, it's not clear what standards it violated. And this is the New York Times position that I talk about it. One element of it that's interesting, we were talking about this in another context, but the there's a parallel here with the kind of things we saw four or five years ago on college campuses, where this became a thing where simply holding a, a view that's not what is acceptable to most people is treated as threatening, as, as literally as violence. So speech is violence. You know, this is a, a, a placard people are holding up in protest. And I, 
and it's hard to see that, I mean, I mean, it's not that hard to see that. I think there's something going on here that's either an echo of that view or literally that view in action, because there is a difference between speech and action and words are not literally violence. Uh, but if that's what you're saying and you're doing it and what makes this more complicated is the workplace uh, labor laws and so on that, that you, as an employee, if someone says they don't feel safe, that's a totally different issue from free speech. There's all kinds of regulations that you have to follow and then be aware of. Um, but, you know, just I think there is a tie in here with that whole thread of thinking that you see bubbling out of academia that blurs language and action. Uh, words and speech, uh, words and action. That yeah. is, is really confusing because it's it's not. I mean, there there are sort of edge cases you can come up with, like threatening somebody, or where, where it's not really speech anymore. That's an action. But but the, the the prevalence of this view, I think, it puts people on the back foot, and they don't know how to handle it because it's not clear what how to disentangle this kind of issue. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, you can make the point, the, just the purely philosophical point that there's a difference between uh, speech and action, and that's what's mistaken about these kinds of claims. But it's also, I think, now interesting to think about the psychology of it, again, on both ends, that if someone's accused of saying something simply by disagreeing, they're threatening someone. Well, again, if they're a better person, they don't want to threaten somebody, so that might give them self-doubt. But then all, the psychology of the person who makes that kind of argument uh, it, this is exactly the kind of argument that you would make if you really did fear disagreement so much that you thought other people disagreeing with you would shatter your universe. You would see it as a kind of existential threat. Uh, you'd be wrong, but it, so there's a real uh, illuminating psychology that, that Iron goes into in this article that really, I think, makes sense of so many different aspects of this culture that we're now living in that we have to deal with. And she gives uh, some really great advice for how to how to deal with it and how to soldier through it. Well, we, we appreciate all the questions that have come in. I think we need to wrap up and thanks to all of those of you who, who submitted super chat questions and donated to help support what we do. Uh, if you're interested in supporting the Institute, we, one of the best ways to do that is to become an ARI member and you can support us uh, that way that helps uh, get our, um, get Ayn Rand's ideas out to the widest possible audience and reach new people uh, with books and ideas and essays and webinars like this. Yeah, and also just remind people that if they uh, like this webinar, they should try to follow us on YouTube. Just go ahead and click that red subscribe button and then also be sure to click the bell if you want to get notifications uh, about every time we go live or put new material up on YouTube. And if you have questions for us you want to follow up with or if you have ideas for other topics, that you'd like to suggest for future webinars, please send us an email to uh, newideal at einrand.org. We read all of that even when we don't always respond to it. So uh, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Elon. I think this was a really interesting conversation and we will all see you uh, next week for another episode of New Ideal Live. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.